so glad you're here. My name is Ian. Uh, I'm the pastor here, and uh, it's just such a gift to be together this morning. We've been in a series on the self, and we've been talking about what it means to have a self received by God. Well, and the thing we focused on is that the self that you have is a unique manifestation of the image of God. You are literally one of a billion, like, infinite. And so... That, for us, is the message that we want to adhere to. And we've been focusing on how the script that we're often given by our culture to establish a self is, is in some ways distorted. Because our culture tells us to live your truth, to be your authentic self. Which, if you actually lay that next to the message that Jesus offers, they're, they're not that different. But again, it's the way that we come about that true and full self that is so different. We have an identity that is a gift from God. You are blessed by God where you sit right now. He is rejoicing over you. And not just us collectively, you individually. He loves you. And if you hear nothing else from me today, you need to hear that. Because so many of us are carrying around burdens of shame, of guilt, of this nagging sense that we cannot ever be put right. God is rejoicing over you right now. Your self is a gift. It is a gift from God and is meant to be offered as a gift to the world. Now, what often happens is when we, when we compare the two scripts that were offered, with, with it, like our culture's script, which is be your best self, establish a self, do something in the world, and then we have this idea of the self that Jesus offers us that is a gift, that can almost betray us in a way that makes us feel like it's complacent. That, that because we have a self that is just received, that we're not supposed to do anything. And yet what we find is that we have all these ambitions, these longings, like so many of you are in advanced study programs, or you've just taken a new job, or you have been trying to, you know, kind of advance in your career, and you're like, what do I do with this impulse to build, to make something of my life, and how does that align with the self that I have received from God? Today we want to talk about that angle. What does it mean? What do you do? with your life, what is your purpose, what is your calling? Because the beautiful thing about Jesus is he was the fullest self who ever lived. Jesus received his identity from the Father. The Father, upon Jesus' baptism, says of Jesus, you are my son, my beloved, with you I am well pleased. But Jesus, out of receiving that identity, gets to work. He blesses the world. Jesus has kingdom ambition to bring the presence of God near to every single place that he walks. And so today, I want to begin to sharpen in as we receive this self that is a gift from God. What do we begin to do with it? We want to ask the question today, what is your purpose? And we've been in this series, and we want to draw these different strands together. And when God sees you, he loves you, he rejoices over you, he sees your beauty and your brokenness, and he has something for you to do. So I, I just want to give you the punchline today, right from the beginning. You were created with a God-given purpose to know God and to create beauty that serves the world out of a life that abides in his love. Let's say that again. You were created 
with a God-given purpose to know God and to create beauty that serves the world out of a life that abides in his love. This purpose will be impacted by so many things. Your circumstances, your personality, your family, the events of your lifetime. But you have a vocational calling, each and every one of you that I stand before today. A purpose in the world. And here's the thing. If yourself, if you living your best self is truly a gift to the world, then the world needs you to offer yourself to the world. The world needs whatever it is that God has put you here to do. Frederick Beekner says that our calling, our vocation, is where the world's deep hunger and our great deep gladness meet. It's a beautiful, beautiful phrase. Because it recognizes our individuality. It recognizes that you are made in the image of God, not a carbon copy, but because God is infinite and expresses himself infinitely, that you were made in an image that is without exhaustion. Where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness meet. And today we want to look at a sudden transformation story in the scriptures. Saul, whom we know more commonly as Paul, in a moment goes from seeking to oppress to arrest the Christian movement. In a moment his life is transformed. In a moment he puts down the false self and finds what is the first glimpse of his true self. And I think in Paul's sudden transformation and some of the other streams of Paul's life, we begin to see the streams that feed our own understanding of what it means to live this life on purpose. Because here's what I know. We all ache for meaning. We want to know that our life matters. We want to know that the thing that we have put uh, you know, our attention, our time, our energy into has some sense of significance. Now, we often have a broken metric for what that significance looks like, and I hope that we can get into that a little bit today, but you want to live on purpose. I know that because you're human. And being human means that we make meaning. We live inside a story, and we have to identify our role in that story. So let's get into our text today, Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at this man named Saul. Now, when any time there is an interchange of names, so we have Saul and Paul today, I will call him both. And that's just my own brokenness. So Saul and Paul, same person. If you ever read Dostoevsky, he does this too, but he's got a purpose behind it. All right, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So... If he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
Now, the first thing that we see here is our shared vocational calling. This is what is true of every single person in this room, every single person right outside this room, walking the streets of the town, every single person that you encounter. Our shared vocational calling is to be called by name to Jesus himself. Jesus is calling your name, just as he called Saul's name. And he's saying to you, I'm here. And whether you are vehemently opposed to what God wants for your life, or you're, you've been trying to ask the question, like, is there a God at all? Jesus is calling your name. This is the intimate, related level that God, the God who made everything, the creator of the universe, meets us in our individuality. He is calling you by name. This is the primary marker which is true of all of us. But today, what we want to do is to get specific. Your specific vocation. To begin to build some lenses for which we can understand. What does it mean to be called by God to live on purpose in the world? And I think this beautiful story gives us so many lovely insights into this. Alright, let's go on in the text. Now, it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, notice how Ananias didn't have to say, who are you? Ananias knows the voice of God. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. Let me tell you what's going on here. Saul's reputation precedes him a little bit. Saul has been oppressing, persecuting Christians. And Ananias is a Christian. This is why he knows God's voice. And he's sitting there praying, and God says, Hey, I want you to go find Saul. And Ananias is like, um, God, I know you know everything, but uh, have you heard about Saul? Because uh, you're kind of, you're kind of uh, putting me out in the open here, and I don't want to get shanked. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said to him, This is beautiful, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me to you, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Only the Jesus story turns enemy oppressors, people who intend violence, into brothers. This is what God has for us. This is part of that story that as we live out our purpose, that we are invited to take our role in. And immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes. And his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now the first thing, we're going to look at four things that we see about Saul's, Paul's calling here. The first thing is that God is paving the way long before Saul is ever blinded on the road to Damascus. God has been paving Saul's path, paving his way reaching out to him, even though Saul doesn't fully understand who Jesus of Nazareth is. 
God tells him, Ananias, that Saul is God's chosen instrument to bring his name before kings and, and rulers and authorities. My, my friend John Tyson has this concept, what he calls sovereign deposits. And I think it is such an important thing for us to understand when we begin to ask the question, what are we here for? It's such a powerful lens. Sovereign deposits are those things that have happened in your life, those experiences, even that unique way that you interact with the world, that, that have just formed part of your identity. And I want to give you just a couple of questions to kind of consider. We've been having, oh, that's so beautiful, Zechariah, you're the man. We had so many computer troubles. Oh, joy, joy, joy. Such a great gift. I, know, I looked back there, I thought he disappeared. So, thank you so much. We had so many troubles this morning. So thanks for singing, even though the words weren't up there. Welcome, Nick. We'll see you. All right. Sovereign deposits, you can see them on the screen. These are just some questions. They're not all the questions, but they're good ones. What formative words have been spoken over you? that you just still hold on to. Words create worlds, friends. Now James talks about that we can also, with our tongue, burn down an entire fort. For some of us, we're carrying around words that are not true of us. What Landon talked about is he's sort of hearing that nagging voice of the enemy. And I love how he said, we're here to do battle today. <laughs> that, was, that was strong prayer, Landon. I like that a lot. But what words have been spoken over you that just resonated in your soul? What are the words that have invited you into the story? That you're, you're almost like, I hope that's true of me. Like, it's almost too good to believe. You're like, that aligns with every, you know, where my deep gladness, and where I feel it deep in my bones. But, you know, for somebody else to recognize that, what words have been spoken over you? What is something only you can do? Now, this may sound incredibly prideful, but it's not. You are the only one who has been given your unique gifts, your unique personality, your unique way of looking at the world, the people that are in your life. You're the only person in the situation that you're in. There are things in the world that only you can do. So what are those things? Who are the people in your life? What we see throughout the scriptures, what we see throughout church history, is that there are movements... That, that are never undertaken in isolation. That always a community forms around. And, and, and vision and gifts are expressed in different ways, but there is this sense of we are living this out together. Who are the people that are in your life? Who are the people that God's put, as we talked about last week, to be companions, pilgrims on the journey? These people are telling you something about yourself. The themes and the stories in scripture that just resonate. Like when you hear that story, you hear the story of the father running down the road to the lost son. You're like, yes. Or you hear the story of Zacchaeus where there's a sycamore tree and he's climbed up and, and Jesus looks at him and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house tonight. Or you hear the story of the woman who has the expensive bottle of perfume and she falls at Jesus' feet in worship, not caring what's going on around her. What stories... Like, they all resonate because they're all beautiful, but they just take on this, this different level of meaning for you. You know, for me, I go back to John 15 all the time. It is the very basis of this church. Remain in my love, and you will bear fruit. This is Jesus' call to us. What does it mean to remain? How do we hold fast? This is the theme of my life. What 
does it mean for us to identify our lives in the scriptures? We see this in Jesus. Jesus is developing an identity through the scriptures. They give him the, the uh, operating structure, the plausibility structure to understand what he came here to do. And in Luke 4, he gets up and he reads from Isaiah 61. Were times you were keenly aware of God's presence, formative moments, you were just like in awe or you know, enraptured. I, I had one of these moments in, at Johnny Cash's house in Tennessee. We were we kind of had this like little worship moment in this house. It was kind of the culmination of a, a, a couple day pastor's retreat, and I, I was just so aware of God's presence in this place. And we were singing this song, and I couldn't sing the words. And I was like. God is doing something in me in this moment, and I need to pay attention to it. This is not just a, a, a moving moment. This is something that is moving something in me that, that is going to uh, form part of my identity going forward. What are those moments in your life? And again, you may be coming in here today, you're like, I've never even donned the doors of a church. I don't know that I've had these keen moments of awareness. These are not meant to be like, okay, you're going to have all the answers to these right now. But I think, too, if we think about the concept of sovereign deposits, you may have moments you can point to and be like, I, couldn't, I didn't have a name for that. I didn't know what that was, but there was something going on that was deeper than I had words for. The last one I, I give to you is the experiences that marked you. And these can be like the best things. You know, these moments in life that you look back on, the highlights, but the beauty of the gospel, Ecclesia, is these can also be the worst things. Jesus bears the scars. And as Diane Langberg says, he will be the only one bearing the scars in heaven. But our scars shape us. And the gospel story tells us that our scars don't get the last word. As, I don't know if you saw that Stephen Colbert quote that I, or a clip that I sent along in our church email. But it's like kind of all over social media. But he talks about his own sense of vocation. He says, my sense of comedy in the face of all that's broken in the world is that death does not get the last word. And for so many of us, we have been shaped by experiences that are terrible, and, you know, are, are not God-ordained, not something that God was like, oh, I'm going to let this happen to them. But they happen. And the amazing thing about the gospel story is that God does not leave us in that experience. God can transform anything even a cross, into resurrection. And so sovereign deposits. And we can't know all of this about Paul and his life from this simple text, but it turns out that so much of Paul's life has prepared him for this exact task which God has for him. Funny how that works. Paul grew up in Tarsus, which was a crossroads of culture in the first century. So Paul understood not just Jewish culture, which he was deeply immersed in, but he understood Gentile culture. Paul speaks Greek. He understands how to relate to the world that is not a part of his family of origin. Paul studied vigorously as a Pharisee, and you see him talk about this in Philippians. He, Paul was a very, very zealous religious person. He studied under Gamaliel, who was in a larger rabbinic school, followed the teachings of Hillel. Paul's imagination was formed by the stories of the scriptures, and really it's why he was so consumed with the notion of these people who followed Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves the question, like, I don't know, have you ever seen somebody not representing Jesus in the best way? Have you ever seen somebody online you're like, this is terrible, that's not what Christians do, we're not like that. Now have you ever felt tempted to like go arrest them? Probably not. Well, some of you. 
why, why was Paul so moved with zeal that he's like, we have to stop this? It's not because Paul was a legalist. Paul was deeply committed to the God of Israel. And he thought, in his frame of reference, that if there were people that were claiming that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and that they were wrong, they were blaspheming. They were profaning the name of God. And that if they were profaning the name of God, then God was not going to return to them and restore them to himself. He thought that this meant that God would lead them in their exile. You see, the people of Paul's day had this understanding that they were in exile. Even though they were in the, the geographic location that God had promised to them, this land of Israel, they understood that they were still under Roman rule. They were still in this oppressed environment. And they wanted, they longed for God to fulfill his promises. And Paul is saying, these people who are saying that Jesus is the Son of God, they are sinful. They need to be stopped. Because until we purify ourselves, God is not going to respond. He is not going to fulfill his promises. So this is what drives Paul's zeal. His imagination was formed by stories like the story of Phineas and Numbers. He thought that these blasphemers were leading the people astray. But Paul's life, everything from his education to where he grew up to the things that he was particularly passionate about and gifted in, all conspired as an instrument that God would use to glorify his name. So, an important question that we have to ask ourselves when we're trying to arrive at a clarity on our vocational calling is what are the sovereign deposits in your life? And I encourage you to take some time to sit with that this week. Again, you're not going to develop a mission and a purpose sitting in a room like this. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Jesus did this. Events transpired in his life that began to shape his own self-understanding. We looked at this in the first week of the series. But there's a seminal moment as Jesus kind of comes to a first glimpse of how his special relationship to the Father is going to bless the world. He gets up in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. And he has sent me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus starts with a statement of purpose. And it's not just to save our souls, is it? Jesus is calling us to a kingdom gospel that has so many implications for the way that we interact with the world. All right, so the first one, sovereign deposits. That's the longest one, just in case you're worried. <laughs> Second one, stewarded by the church. We see that Paul's vocational calling is stewarded and conformed, or confirmed by the body of Jesus in service to the body of Christ and to the world. Ananias, very reluctant, very understandably so, to go and to be near Paul because he knows what Paul has come here to do. But only when Ananias lays his hands on Paul does Paul regain his sight and begin to strengthen himself for what lies ahead. Our vocational callings, this is important, do not all revolve around the church. It's why we have to have an understanding for vocation that is bigger than our career. And I'll say it in a couple ways. First of all, my vocational calling, part of it is being a pastor to this church. That's not the whole thing. And so we have to understand that our vocational callings are not trying to figure out which ministry you're called to. As you know, we sort of typically see in the architecture of the church in the West. Our vocations are not separate from our career. 
but a vocation integrates our lives. It doesn't compartmentalize them. Here, Paul's vocation is to serve both those inside the church and those outside the church. And the role of the leaders in the church, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is to equip the saints. Spoiler alert, the saints are all of us. You're a saint. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. To help you integrate your lives. To help you understand what is the purpose that Jesus has given you. Now, a couple things. I think serving in church, particularly when you're young, and this has been my experience, I was asked to, to lead in different ways when I was in high school that have still formed my identity and my sense of vocational calling. And I, I would suspect that that's true for many of us in this room. I think that serving in the church can be a beautiful training ground of sorts to begin to understand our vocations. But I also want to say this so clearly to you. Our vocations are not our careers. Our vocations are not simply what we do in the confines of a church. And in a church body, our vocations are a witness to the inbreaking reign of Jesus, the Messiah, the one who rules the world. God created the entire world. And so, our lived experience in the, in the world, the things that we do, can be a witness in every way to this reign. Paul says in Colossians, do everything to the glory of God. All of our making, our playing, our exploring, our researching, our caring for small children, our taking care of loved ones who need us because they're ill, all of it flows from ourself, an identity that is rooted in the God who is God of all. So yes, church work, like being a pastor or a missionary, can be part of our vocation. And so can being a stay-at-home mom. So can eating meals with the homeless, writing a symphony or a novel, and caring for loved ones. All of these things are part of God's call to us. And we have to ask, where does our deep gladness meet with the world's deep honor? We have to begin to understand what it means to receive the gift of the self that God has given you. Every follower of the way of Jesus is called to full-time ministry. Every one of us. Peter says that we are a kingdom of priests. Like you were called to tell the world what God looks like. This is part of our vocations. You were called to steward your imagination, your ambition, your skills with finances and organization, your affections, not just in service to yourself, what Alan Mann calls project self, but in service to the body of Christ and in service to the world. This is, we begin to see a glimpse of our vocation. And the church should be a place where we expect God to move. Where we expect God to move in our daily lives. I would love, friends, if our church became the kind of place where we just routinely ask the question, what's God doing in your life? Like that's, that's kind of an aggressive, like, how are you doing? Cool, good, good, good. What's God doing in your life? Yo, he's off a little bit, all right? <laughs> but I would love if that became a part of our conversational lexicon. If we were expectant enough to expect that God is doing something among us. And you know, I would love if sometimes the answer looked like this. You know, I had a conversation with a waitress. I, I thought, like, I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to, to, like, offer her a word of comfort to tell her about Jesus as we're sitting there. I tipped really well at the end of the meal and told her about Jesus. I would love if sometimes that was the content of that conversation. And I would equally love if the, if the answer to the question, what is God doing in your life, would be sometimes something like this. You know, we've been really stuck at work. A lot of relational difficulty, a lot of uh, a lack of direction. But this week it felt like there was some real breakthrough. 
you know, we do these things where we order what's spiritual and what's not. But if God is God of all, and he's given you a vocation, and part of your vocation is spending 50, 60 hours a week in study or at work, then perhaps we need to begin to understand how God is informing that vocation in those places. Not always thinking the action is somewhere over there. Perhaps those two instances are equally holy and meaningful. So we have to understand that our call is stewarded by the church in service to the world. Third, we see that Saul's radical shift as his vocation and true self unfolds will involve suffering. Now when we hear that, our default response is like, suffering? No, thank you. I'm good. Paul, throughout his life with Jesus, will be forthcoming about his sufferings. Paul will never shy away from them. Paul sees his sufferings as evidence of God's work. Even Colossians 1.24, he says, I am rejoicing now in my sufferings for your sake. And I, in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, his church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, so that it may be clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. But then he says this, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Paul sees suffering as part of his vocation because suffering is the way that Jesus brings about glory and resurrection. Jesus undoes suffering by entering into its depths. And friends, we know this because we have lived some life. There is no love without suffering. To love another person is to suffer with them and oftentimes because of them. Suffering is a part of our vocational calling. And Jesus doesn't just call us to suffer as some sort of divine, twisted training ground. All of us, to some degree, have loved and received love. We know from our experience that to love someone fully and truly is to suffer. And Paul says he's willing to suffer because he has counted the cost and he's seen that living in the fullness of his vocational call in relatedness to Jesus Christ, in intimacy with him, far outweighs these slight momentary afflictions. A good lens to begin to understand your vocation in the world is simply to ask yourself, what are you willing to suffer for? The world's deep hunger will not be filled with comfort and ease. It will cost us something. But what we find is that momentary affliction is far, far outweighed by the eternal weight of glory that God has for us. What is so beautiful, so necessary, so just, so humane that you're willing to go through the pain of the uncertainty, of unknowing, of physical discomfort, of financial insecurity, of taking a path that is different from the up and to the right trajectory that we are sold so often. Suffering is a part of our way in the world. We are the people of suffering love. And it doesn't mean that we're called to be constantly beaten down. In the midst of that suffering, Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. Paul finds power. He finds joy. We are not to be a people who are like, oh, I'm just suffering for the Lord. No, God has something for us that is so much better. 
And it's often that we see the glimpses of this vocational call through our suffering. Lastly, our vocational identities are forged in silence and solitude before God. Jesus, as we talked about week one of this series, spent 40 days in the wilderness. If you read Galatians, uh, Galatians 1 verse 17, uh, Paul would later re- receive further revelation to his call that he receives first in Acts 9 in the Arabian desert. This is so important for us as people in the West because, again, the script we are given is live your best self, be your true self, build an identity for yourself. And all of that involves this exhausting sort of building from the ground up. We think we have to establish an identity and establish worth in the world. But what Jesus shows us is that our identity is a gift that is given to us from heaven to earth. It is a divine deposit in your life. We receive it. That our vocations are not ultimately about what we will do, but they are about who we will be and who we will become. They are the overflow of communion with God. All the great movements of God in the scriptures have been forged in solitude. Abraham meets God in a secret place and God tells him to go from everything that you know and go to a country that I will show you. Jacob wrestles with God in the dark of the night. Moses is wandering the wilderness for 40 years when a burning bush erupts and meets him. The people of God, as they are finally liberated from slavery, are not brought immediately to the promised land, but they're brought to the wilderness. Elijah is hiding in the wilderness and God meets him on the mountain and says, I will cause my glory to pass before you. David is hiding in caves. Mary, in the secret place, an angel comes and says, a Messiah will be born that's going to change everything. Jesus, throughout his life, constantly finds moments to steal away and to be with his Father alone. And it's out of that deep well that he loves and serves the world and blesses the world. Jesus at Gethsemane will be alone one more time. His friends have fallen asleep. He is in complete isolation before God. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus on the cross is abandoned. Jesus in the grave on that holy Saturday when we don't know that the world is being remade. And then Jesus on Easter Sunday, as he says the world that brings the world to life, he says somebody's name. He says, Mary. Mary's alone. She meets the risen Christ. And then the disciples locked in the upper room. All of these are precursors, potential energy for God to do something revolutionary in the world. And for us, as we begin to ask ourselves the question, what is our purpose? What is our vocation? We have to understand that God is wanting to meet with us in the secret place. When God gets us alone, when he gets our full attention, when we receive his love, we find ourselves. And we get a sense of our mission in the world. When God gets the people of God alone, the world will never be the same. You were created with a God-given purpose to know God and to create beauty that serves the world out of a life that abides in His love. Martin Luther King Jr. couldn't sleep one night. At age 27, he was the leader of the Montgomery Bus Boycott. His position led to countless death threats and criticism from people who were supposed to be his Christian brothers and sisters. Christian leaders, places like Birmingham, asking him, Martin, why are you doing this? Why are you pushing so hard on this? People that he thought would be on his side were critiquing him. And on a night in 1956, it all became too much. The overwhelming weight of despair and anxiety pressed on him like the water pressure deep in the sea. And Martin Luther King Jr. writes, 
He says, I was ready to give up. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. And at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. And God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. Three days later, he would face anything. Dr. King's house would be bombed. Now, thankfully, nobody in his family was home at the time, but understandably, King's supporters were furious. And they rallied to his side. They brought weapons, and they said, We will fight anybody who is standing in the way of our cause, and especially if they're willing to stoop to this level. They're, they're rallying around him. And if Martin Luther King had not had that moment in the still and the quiet, he might have been like, let's fight. You're bombing my house and my family. I am so ready. Martin Luther King disarmed the situation because he understood his vocation, his call in the world to nonviolent protest preach the gospel of the kingdom, to undo systems of white supremacy and systemic racism by his suffering love. And God meets us in the silence because in silence alone before God, we give up the game that we can forge an identity of our own, that our projects will save us, that we are alone in those moments with our fears, our doubts, our insecurities, and we are met there by the presence of a peace that surpasses all understanding. When God wants to get us to himself so that he can share himself and our full selves with the world. And friends, coming to our an understanding of our vocations is a lifelong journey. And Jesus promised us he will never leave us. He is with us for the journey. He is walking alongside of us. And I think today, for some of us, we need to just make a determination, draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? I may have been living with this kind of vague sense of purpose, and that sense of purpose may continue to be vague, but I want to walk in the direction of intentionality. I want to walk towards something. I want to have some understanding. I, I want to begin to just apply some of these questions and be like, God, what do you want from me? Because we all deeply want our lives to matter, to have significance. But the beauty of the gospel is you do not forge an identity that God will approve of. You do not forge an identity that God will say, okay, good. You did everything that you could accomplish. You, you reached your full potential. No, God wants that for us. But regardless, where you stand right now, He rejoices over you. For some of us, we need to begin to live our life on purpose. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. For others of us, maybe today you're like where Saul was in this story. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He says, who are you, Lord? As, as Jesus cries out His name. And I think for many of us, we're sort of starting in that place. Like, I didn't even know there was this kind of bigger story going on. I've just been trying to get through life, trying to figure it out. And to you today, the God of the universe, the one who gave you the gift of yourself that is intended as a gift to be offered to the entire world, gave his life as a gift. He suffered and died on a cross so that we could receive the freedom and liberation to be our true selves before God, to know the God who made us intimately, and to live as a gift into the world. So today, I just want to offer, our, our prayer team will be up 
Frank is going to be shown. At the back, thank you. Our prayer team will be at the back, friends. And as we sing this song of response and worship, we're going to sing the lyrics that are on the screen, and in a moment we'll move to the table. But during these moments, I just want to pray that God's Spirit would meet with us. And if you're saying, today, I want to start living on purpose, our prayer team would be so overjoyed to pray with you. And if you're saying today, like, I carried in all of this sense of false self that Saul is manifesting here. I carried all of that in. And I just need somewhere to put it. Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, put your burdens upon me. I will give you rest. But Ecclesia, let us be a church that lives on purpose. The world desperately needs us. They're starving for you to find where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness. Let us pray.